None of what you're about to hear is inspired by a true story. It is a true story. My name is Reed Domingo, and I robbed 12 banks in San Diego, California. I didn't hurt anyone. I never wanted to. I did it all for love and to pay for the devastating debts racked up from the costs of IVF needed for my wife and I to start a family. Let me tell you about how I reached such a point in my life, the wonderful things that happened to me before, during, and after the robberies, and how I found redemption by helping others during my time in prison. So here then, in my own words and in my own voice, is my story. Episode 1. My name is Reed. I loved my father. At times we might not have had the best relationship, but I suppose if I had to look back at one thing with regards to him, I think I was always searching for my father's approval. My father was one of six brothers growing up in apartheid South Africa. In the 40s he went to school and he graduated in the late 50s. He did so well with his matriculation, which is the sort of university entrance exam, he was one of three non-white students that was allowed to go to the University of Cape Town every year. My father went there and read biochemistry. While he was there, he won the scholarship award for chemistry. Upon graduation, he went to work for a biochemical company called Miles. He was a, um, an R&D scientist in the diagnostic enzyme field. What are enzymes? They're catalysts, catalysts that speed up chemical reactions or biological reactions. In the mid-60s, Miles bought a company in the United Kingdom and told my dad that he would be relocating to be involved in their R&D team. So where am I from? I suppose, in essence, I was born in Cape Town in 1964 to Rashid and Morita Domingo. I was the second child. I already had a daughter, Rueda, that was born 11 months before me. And uh, obviously, you know, I don't have many recollections of what it was like to be growing up in South Africa because at the age of three, my dad packed up his whole family, kit, caboodle and all, put it on board a ship, and we sailed from Cape Town to Dover. It was a two-week trip, and my sister even celebrated her birthday during that trip. When we arrived in the UK... We stayed with some family friends, and after a couple of weeks, we moved into a little flat in the Maidenhead area. I was three, my sister was four. To us, we had no concept of where we were. Obviously, we're just in a different place. The fact that it was 5,000 miles from where we used to be was of no consequence to us. We were little kids. My parents were wonderful parents. They loved my sister and I dearly. My dad worked hard, and when he came home, we were a family. Although we didn't really do a lot of things that I would say were father and son, he was a really good dad and a wonderful provider for his family. Because I had a sister that was just 11 months older than me, we always hung out and my sister was my best friend. And my mom, actually not being that much older, you know, my mom was 18 when she had my sister and 19 when she had me. My mom provided most of the sort of fun entertainment things with her two kids. But I'll always remember that my dad had a great sense of humour 
and would always make the family laugh. <laughs> the wonderful thing for me was with my parents and the life that they provided. As a young kid, I never worried about a thing. When I used to go to sleep at night, all I'd be thinking about was playing with my friends the next day, riding my bicycle, but I didn't have a care in the world. It was a wonderful childhood. My father had been asked to relocate from Cape Town to be part of a research team that was working with diagnostic enzymes. And he did actually most of the work. But because there was a South African company that had purchased a British company, even though it was in the UK, it was run under sort of a South African sort of regime. And my father, being a non-white South African, could not be seen to be leading their research program. So every methodology that my father created, it was his boss that had his name put at the bottom as to the person that should get credit for it. So my dad did get a bonus. We're probably talking about 1970 by this time. And I think it was five pounds. He was paid a five pound bonus for his contribution. So in uh, 1971, my dad decided to take a gamble and open his own diagnostic company. So using a disused ice cream factory in Cookham, he started Biozyme. And I was a little kid and I didn't know anything about that. As far as I was concerned, you know, my dad just worked at a factory. And as we were little kids, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And I distinctly remember this in the sense that my mom used to make a pot of food on a Monday and we used to eat the same food until the end of the week. But, you know, being a three-year-old, four-year-old kid, you don't really notice that sort of stuff. It's here's your dinner and that's all it was. So for the first year, the company had some tough times, almost went under by the end of the second year, and then was able to turn the corner and the company was starting to do well. In 1974, my dad needed to expand the company but didn't really have the resources to do it. So it was around the same time that, unfortunately, the coal industry in South Wales was very much on the decline. They had started to build these industrial estates to try and replace the uh, opportunities from the coal industry. And they offered my dad a free building, uh, cheap electricity, cheap rates, if he would bring a company to South Wales and employ local people. So it was a win-win situation for my dad that he could get a larger facility, do the expansion that he needed, and at a very reasonable cost to himself. So in 1974, we moved from Maidenhead to a town called Abergavenny in South Wales. I was about 10 years of age, my sister was 11, and we really, really resonated with the Welsh people. Um, what would seem so weird is that when I was in school, I went to a comprehensive school called King Henry VIII. And at that time, I think there were only four children in the whole comprehensive that weren't white. My sister, myself, and two Indian kids. But did I feel different? Did I feel like I didn't belong there? Not at all. We were welcomed by the local Welsh community, and I had a phenomenal time living in Abergavenny. Time moved forward, and my dad's business just went from strength to strength. I kind of realized that things were kind of moving for my dad, or for us in total, because uh, my dad went from driving a little Renault to the next thing I know on the driveway is sitting a BMW. Then immediately my dad's saying, oh, we're going to look at a different house. And so it was kind of weird. We were actually were driving to school, and then as we came up to the school gates on the right, my dad turned left to these 
huge wrought iron black gates that opened up to a private driveway that was tree-lined and as it went up, curved to the right, then to the left, you came to a house. The house stood out and it was a three-story, I think it was Edwardian period house. Massive, I mean, something that we'd never seen. You could have put three of our house in this house. But the piece de resistance for me was the fact that it had a swimming pool. And that was just lifestyles of the rich and famous as far as I was concerned. We had a swimming pool, we had these beautiful grounds. And it was at that time that I came to the realization that obviously my dad must be doing all right. And it was then, I think I was about 14 at the time, my mom explained, oh yeah, your dad doesn't work for Biozyme. He owns Biozyme. One of the things that my dad did, he liked the house so much that when he bought the house, he bought the house and all of the contents, all of the furniture, everything. The only thing that we had to move in with was our clothes. So, you know, it was a great time, and, and I really enjoyed living in that beaches. And as I said, it was so close to the school that in the morning I could actually wait to hear the school bell ring and that would give me enough time to leave the house and walk down the school driveway and enter school on time. Because obviously the bell rings and within about 10 minutes they would do uh, the register and everything. It was a major turning point for us. It was also probably the first time that I would say that, that I almost noticed maybe some cracks in us as a family. I mean, before when we lived in Maidenhead, we used to have dinner in the kitchen as a family. My dad would be home somewhere around 5, 5.30 in the afternoon. While we waited for my mom to bring the food to the table, my dad sitting at the head of the table used to take his knife and fork and play the plates and bowls like they were drums, entertaining my sister and myself, annoying my mom to the point that she would scold my dad and my dad would look sheepish but we all knew, oh, Dad's the boss. But in the kitchen, waiting for dinner, we all played these silly little games, and my mom was allowed to be the boss. And in some ways, that was some of the best time for us as a family. So obviously, you know, when we were now living at the beaches, and my dad was working hard and also traveling a lot. So we were living there in the beaches. I had friends over. They were really impressed with the house. And it was at that time when i just finished my O-levels that my dad said, oh, Reed, you know what, we're going to look at a different school for you. And I was just finishing my O-levels, so I thought, oh, well, I kind of like this school. But my dad said, no, 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 son, this will be a good school for you. And we went, and it was Monmouth Boys School, 17 miles away, and it was an actual public school or on that public charter. The boys had all these uniforms and everything. And once I completed my O-levels, yeah, uh, I now started at Monmouth. Even though it was 17 miles away, my parents, in their ultimate wisdom, decided that I would be a full-time boarder. And although I initially was a little bit resistant to it, it turned out to be some of the best years of my life. I was probably, oh, I'd say about 14, 15, that I used to accompany my dad to the lab on the weekends. It was an industrial state, but it was empty because it was the weekend. But my dad was such a cool guy, we'd go up there, and while my dad would spend maybe two to three hours in the lab doing the things that he wanted to, my dad would let me just drive the car around on the industrial estate. So interestingly, by the time I was 15, I was a pretty proficient driver. There were even a couple of times, I shouldn't say this, but my dad let me drive home. <laughs> I loved my dad. I suppose things only became a bit fractious around academics. I think my dad could see that I was 
I had intelligence. I wasn't a stupid guy. But from my dad's perspective, I think he felt that I never really applied myself. I had wonderful opportunities afforded to me that my dad could only have dreamt of when he was a young boy. And I think it was the fact that my dad didn't feel that I maximized those opportunities that in some ways probably irritated him. Unfortunately, as a consequence, the yardstick that my dad always used to measure me were always academically based. If I came home and I got 90 on a test, my dad's response would be, well, what happened to the other 10%? And I always remember that. It never seemed like what I did was always good enough for my dad. But I always tried, and I tried hard, but maybe from my dad's perspective, I could have done better. I would say I was an average student. I was, I was academically competent, but where I probably lacked some focus was on completing things. I procrastinated about things a lot. If homework was due, I always did it the night before. Even if it meant I had to pull an all-nighter and get no sleep, well, that was just the way I did it. And I'd always promise myself, oh, I'll never do that again. But you could guarantee next time a project came round and it was due, I would be leaving it to the last minute. It was a very interesting day because today was the day my dad was going to take me to boarding school. That was about 1980, and it was Monmouth School for Boys to do my A-levels. I remember you know, my dad taking me in his BMW. We had all my clothes piled up in a suitcase and uh, some food items, my school equipment, and uh, I was allowed one luxury item, so I brought my record player and a selection of records. And... Obviously, that 17-mile journey from Abergavenny to Monmouth was over in about, you know, 20, 25 minutes. And we pulled in through these large wrought iron gates with big stone foundations on each side, going up the driveway of the uh, boarding school with manicured lawns on both sides until we came to the end. And right there on the right-hand side was where I would now be staying, New House in Monmouth Boys' School. We were met at the front by Mr. Bowditch, the housemaster. He and my father exchanged a few pleasantries, and Mr. Bowditch welcomed me to New House. I brought my suitcase, my, I think my dad carried my record player for me, to my study. And uh, I would be sharing a room with another A-level student, Kevin. He was a local boy from ross on Wye, and uh, seemed like a nice guy, and obviously, hopefully, we would become friends. And we did. My dad put my record player down, and Mr. Bowdy said, OK, well, you know, I suppose this is it. He left, and my dad basically just reassured me, son, make the most of this. This is a great opportunity for you. Yeah, whatever you say, Dad, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're right. And as my dad turned to leave, he slipped some money into my pocket. said, take this just in case you need anything. Thanks, Dad. I walked him out to the front of the building, saw him get in his car, back up, and drive away. Didn't even give me a wave, I think. I swear, I think I heard his tires screeching as he was leaving. I put my hand in my pocket. It was 30 pounds. 30 pounds. I don't think at that point I'd ever seen 30 pounds. That first half term was a little tough for me because it was an adjustment period. Getting used to being told what time to get up, what time to go eat... You have to go to lessons. Everything was quite regimented. Yeah, it was kind of a strange environment, but I suppose it was uh, some rules and regulations that were definitely going to serve me well later in life. 
He told me he had dreams as a kid, always, of being in prison, being in prison, being in prison. And he said he had those dreams all the time. And he almost knew for some reason he was going to end up there. My first response at that time, I'm a different person than what I am now, because I'm so uh, full of wisdom, I'm joking. Um, but at that time, I, I, I thought then it was a warning to say, don't do that. <laughs> That's so I'd look at it that way, like, hey. Okay, that's going to come up? No. The way he looked at it, it was almost like he needed to, that's where he was going to go. He needed to complete that for his own reasons. Over the course of that first term, I really did start to embrace life at Monmouth. They decided to put me in charge of all of the 15-year-old guys. So I would sleep in the dormitory at night with about 15, 16, 15-year-old boys, they would all go to bed earlier at their prescribed bedtime. And by the time I came to bed, which would be about 10 o'clock, everything had to be quiet. And invariably it was. When I walked into the room, if there was any whispering or chatter, it came to an end. I would find my bed, go to sleep, and wait for Mr. Bowditch to come and wake us up. I really did start to embrace life at Monmouth. And I remember just before Christmas being called into Mr. Bowditch's office, where he basically said that to me. You know, Reed One, you've really done a good job adjusting to being here at Monmouth, and I believe you will be an asset here at Newhouse. And as such, I would like to bestow the honour of making you a house prefect. Wow, that was nice. It was recognition of what I was doing in the house. I didn't get anything specific, like a tie or anything like that, but there was a notice of it in the list of the boys that were members of Newhouse. Next to my name was now the words House Prefect. As I said, I was a full-time boarder at school, so I didn't really go home. You were entitled to go home for one weekend every half term. So basically, out of every six or eight weeks, you were allowed one weekend at home. Every year, they would have a May ball for the sixth formers, where members of the boys' school sixth form and members of the Haberdashers' girls' school sixth form would have a co-ed event. In preparation for this, a 17-year-old Reed decided, what should I do for this ball? My brilliant idea for the evening was to dye my hair. I decided, what colour shall I dye it? Let's go blonde. That's quite striking. My friends and I went into town, grabbed something from the chemist, came back. I dyed my hair blonde. Unfortunately, at that moment, I realized that the suit that I wanted to wear for the May ball was at home. Fortuitously, one of my friends, not a full-time boarder because we weren't allowed to, he was a day boy, had a car. So I convinced him to give me a lift 17 miles to my house so I could get my suit. I remember the two of us going to my parents' house and seeing my mom and my dad sitting in the kitchen. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. How are you doing? I'm, you know, no, they were surprised to see me. What are you doing here? You're supposed to be at school. I explained, oh, yeah, tonight, as it's a Saturday, it's our May ball. I've just come back to get my suit. Their next words were, what happened to your hair? My hair was now bright blonde. Obviously, in a convincing tone, I told my parents, oh, don't worry about it, it's just hair dye. I'm going to wash it out later on. Neither my mom or my dad were too impressed. I went, got my suit, 
proceeded to the Maypole. What a fabulous evening I had there. But obviously, my blonde hair was not only noticed by my parents, but all of the housemasters and all of the teachers. I definitely received some non-approving looks while I was at the Maypole. At the end of the evening, Mr. Bowditch came over to me and said, uh, Read one, you need to go see the headmaster. The headmaster's home was on the other side of Newhouse. It was late at night, probably about 10 o'clock, but I went there and knocked on the door as I was told. The headmaster's wife opened the door, looked at me, said, Ah, read one. Yes, we're expecting you. Please come through. She led me through their beautiful house to the study. There, sitting in the study, was the headmaster, behind his desk, wearing his official robe. Read one, what have you done with your hair? I, I dyed it, sir. Unacceptable, unacceptable. You will dye your hair back. You will dye your hair back before Monday morning. Yes, sir. With that, the meeting was over. I turned round, I left, I went back to Newhouse. Sitting there with my friends, we obviously realised, well, well, hang on, how are you going to dye it back? It's Saturday night, tomorrow's Sunday, nothing's open. You won't be able to dye it back. Yeah, that's right. Shall I go back and, and tell the headmaster that that request is impossible? No, I know what we should do. I'll just shave it off. And with that, somebody took out some uh, beard trimmer that they had, some sort of clippers. We clipped the hair down and then proceeded to lather it up and shave my head completely bald. What a perfect solution. I remember the next morning, waking up Sunday morning and going to breakfast. Walked out of Newhouse, round the corner to the dining hall. I went down the stairs, in through the main entrance and went to take my place in line where other people were in line and everybody else was eating. As I stood there, you could hear everything getting quieter and quieter. Everybody was staring at me. In that silence, I turned, looked at everybody, smiled, and it erupted. Everybody cheered and clapped. It was hilarious. I went and got my tray, got my breakfast, sat down. Everything returned to normal. I had some people coming up, wanting to touch my head, see what it felt like, but the response was generally very, very positive. After breakfast, I walked back to Newhouse. Obviously, word had spread by this point. In comes Mr. Bowditch. What, 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 what have you done? I explained to Mr. Bowditch that I'd been to the headmaster and he told me to dye my hair back by Monday, but I said I had chosen to just cut it off and that should resolve the matter. Mr. Bowditch said, please go to your study. I will get to you shortly. Half an hour later... Both Mr. Bowditch and the headmaster came in and informed me that until my hair grew back, I was not to leave the house other than for specific lessons, but absolutely, categorically, I was not allowed to go into the dining hall. They felt that my presence in there would be far too disruptive. I wasn't really too concerned. Oh, my hair will grow back quickly. So from that point forward, I had to eat my breakfast, lunch and dinner that was brought to me in my study. Yeah, it won't take too long. Here's where it gets interesting. 
Along with not eating in the dining hall, I was not allowed off the school grounds. Now we come to the following Friday. Words out, the fun fair's in town. I knew things were going to get interesting. It was late afternoon, early evening, and I decided to sneak out the backside of the school and go to the fun fair. I wore a little headband on my head because I was completely bald. I had some fun at the fun fair and then decided to return back to my study. As I opened the study and went in, who was standing in my study? Mr. Bowditch. Hmm. Said nothing more than, your parents have been informed that you were not here. You are now suspended. Tomorrow, your father is coming here to pick you up. He left and I knew, hmm. Things weren't going to be as fun as I thought. I had a terrible evening because I knew my dad was coming. The following morning, obviously, even though it was a Saturday, I didn't have to go to school. I was just told to prepare myself, get my stuff together. My father was going to come and meet me. Around 10 a.m., I was informed, your father is here. He's in Mr. Bowditch's office. I went up there, knocked on the door, and when I entered... Mr. Bowditch was sitting behind his desk. My father was sitting in the chair opposite. They both looked at me. I looked at my dad. There was nothing exchanged between us. After a brief conversation where Mr. Bowditch explained that I had now been suspended for a week, my dad thanked Mr. Bowditch. They shook hands. We walked out to the car, and I got in. That 17-mile drive back to my house my father and I didn't exchange a single word. When we got home, as we drove up the driveway, you could hear the stones crackling under the tires. Round the house, into the courtyard. My dad turns the car off, gets out without saying anything, walks into the house. When I walk into the kitchen, my mom and dad are standing there. It's at this point that my dad just went incandescent. What the hell are you doing? Do you not realize what it takes for your mother and I to put you in this school, etc., etc.? My dad read me the riot act. At the end, he turned to my mom and said, What are we going to do with this boy? He cannot stay here. To which my mom obviously said, Well, well Rashid, where is he going to go? I don't care. He cannot stay here. And my mom said, But we, what can we do, Rashid? We ca what can we do with him? There was a pause. Right, that's it. I'm leaving. And my dad left. He went out through the kitchen, got in his car, and for the next two days, my dad stayed in a hotel. And uh, obviously he went to work on Monday, but he did come home on Monday evening. Things were very tense, obviously, at home for that week. Meals were in silence, and I really didn't communicate with my father. Uh, that week passed quickly, and come the following Sunday, I was back at school. It was a short week because it was going to be half term. I had a friend at school, a guy called Clive, whose parents worked and lived in Zimbabwe. So obviously for these short breaks that just constituted a half term, he used to stay with somebody in the UK. My parents had agreed to have Clive stay with us. This wasn't the first time he'd been there, so absolutely no problem. We were at home one day during that half term, sun was shining, it was awesome. And uh, my mom had recently taken possession of a new car from my dad. Uh, I don't believe it was a birthday gift or anything like that, but she got this new car, it was imported from France. It was a Renault 5 GT something something, and it was a 
metallic champagne colour. Unique. That colour was not available in the UK. That's when my dad had it imported. So, you know, Mum, can I just go drive the car around with Clive? Yeah, of course, of course. So I jumped in the car. We went tearing around Abergavenny. And then on the way back to the house, I said, oh, Clive, let me show this other way back to the house. Instead of just the main road, we could go up the side. And then there was this country lane that led back towards the house. It was a single track road such that if somebody else came in the other direction, you know, one of you is going to have to back up at some point. We were tearing along there. I was doing my Colin McRae impression, sliding the car this way, that way, pushing it, nothing crazy, but pushing it beyond my limits. All of a sudden, I was, oh my God! The car lurches left, lurches right, clips the bank, flips onto its side. We're now scraping down the road on the passenger side of the car. As we come to the other side, we hit the bank, flip the car back onto the driver's side. I had my window down, so obviously as the car's sliding along on the driver's side, the ground is maybe two inches away from my shoulder. I'm lifting my shoulder up as the car slides down the road for about 30 yards. Radio's playing, da 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 da. Car comes to a stop. I turn the radio off. I look to Clive. I say, Clive, are you, are you okay? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. So he reaches up pushes the door up, and we climb out of the car like we're stepping out of a submarine. We stand away from the car, looking at it. It is wrecked. Everything is broken on that car. I don't believe there's a single straight or unscratched panel on the car. At this point, we're only maybe four or five hundred yards from the house. Uh, We come to the little crossroads, come down. We're at the house. I go up the driveway to the kitchen where my mom is. She looks at Clive and myself and she goes, oh, oh, you guys are back. Oh, I didn't hear the car and everything. To which I tell my mom, uh, mom, I crashed the car. (sighs) My mom sighs, turns off all the burners on the stove. Where's the car? Oh, it's just, just up the street, mom. So my mom, Clive and myself, we, you know, walk up the hill, round that corner to come across where the car had been lying. By the time we get there, there's a police car. And uh, after identifying myself as being the driver, uh, I'm breathalyzed, which obviously comes back uh, negative. And uh, once we explained that there were no injuries, it's just unfortunate. I, obviously, I just said, oh, that it wasn't really my fault. Uh, but the police were satisfied that this was not a matter that needed to be investigated further. A tow truck had been called, at which point my mom, Clive and myself could go back to the house. We go ahead and do so. Clive and I go sit in the front room and uh, await my father. We knew he'd be back within half an hour or so. Now, the next part was told me by my mom, and she indicated that as my dad was driving home, he got to within about half a mile of the house, and as he comes around a corner, he sees this flatbed truck coming towards him, and when he looks at the back, he sees the Renault 5 GT blah, blah, blah on the top, Every single panel smashed, broken, tires blown out, windscreen smashed, not a straight panel on there, and he realizes that car belongs to my wife. My father put his foot down, flew to the house, up the driveway, stones flying everywhere, comes around, parks in the courtyard, rushes into the kitchen and sees my mom standing there. Oh, thank God, thank God, my dad was like, oh, thank God, Morita, you're okay. Oh, my God. Thank God, are you all right? My mom said, yes, of course I'm all right. She goes, I wasn't driving. There's a pause. 
Where the hell is he? My dad leaves the kitchen and I can hear my dad coming. Through the house, comes into the living room. I'm sitting on the couch. My friend Clive is sitting on the chair opposite. As my dad enters the room, Clive jumps to his feet, says, oh, good evening, Mr. Domingo, and then leaves the room, leaves me to my dad. My dad just goes off on me. What the hell do you think you're doing? Do you realize that was your mother's car? Oh, yes, he really goes at it with me. Obviously, there's nothing I can say. I decide the best thing for me would probably be to go to my room. I look at my dad and I say, you didn't even ask if I was okay. Oh, I know I shouldn't have said that. My dad just kind of puffed up, but I just laughed. I know I don't need to hear the answer to that. And uh, I suppose the sad thing about that was uh, two days later, it was my birthday, my 18th birthday. And uh, I do remember, I think my mom said my dad bought me a watch, but I never received it, so I don't really know. So <laughs> After my, my birthday, uh, I was summoned into my dad's office and he told me what my punishment would be. For crashing my mom's car, I was now banned from driving any of the vehicles in the house for one year. Couldn't drive any cars at all. But, you know, this shouldn't come as a surprise because this is not the first time that I've been grounded. I do remember there was one time, it was close to Christmas, and I had a young lady friend over at the house, and it was still, you know, early evening, and I realised she needed to get back home, so I asked my dad if there was any way I could, you know, borrow a car to take her home. And all my dad did was just raise his eyes and look at me. And I went, oh, no, 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 actually, you know, I think if we leave now, we could probably get there quite, quite expeditiously if we walked. Um, I just knew, once my dad says something, you don't argue with him. When I finished my A-levels, I got some average grades, but because of my dad's connections in the biochemistry field, one of the universities that he had actually been working with was Bath University. And as a consequence, they offered me a place to read biochemistry once I completed my A-levels. The unfortunate thing was about mm, two, three weeks before I was supposed to start at Bath University, I really was honest with my dad and told him that I didn't want to read biochemistry. It wasn't something that really lit me up. Um, my dad was passionate about it, but I wasn't. I was a competent student, but I really wasn't fired up with biochemistry. So my girlfriend at the time said she was going to Portsmouth Polytechnic to read sociology. And I gave them a call and said, hey, what, what courses are unfulfilled? And they read this off and that off. And then they came to civil engineering. And I said, oh, is that like building bridges and roads and everything? And they go, yeah, yeah, that's it. And I remember the person I was speaking to said, okay, what have you got? What qualifications have you got? And I said, oh, I've got 10 O levels and five A levels. And the person laughed, absolutely laughed and said, oh, yeah, you got that? Yeah, send us proof of that and you're on the course, which I duly did. And yeah, so I enrolled to read civil engineering at Portsmouth Polytechnic. Again, not something that went down well with my father. He'd spent all this money to give me a private education, and here I was going to a polytechnic. And unfortunately, after two years, I didn't pass my second year, and at the same time, things broke down with my girlfriend. One of the reasons what probably also contributed to me not doing so well in that second year was I spent most of my time in the building next door, which was the computing building. 
new concept. And one of the things that I was introduced to in that building was a thing called a computer, a BBC 32K. Pause for a second, yeah, 32K was the capacity of these computers. It was incredible. I mean, you could basically, you know, punch on these little keys, write a bit of code, and the next thing you would see colors and sound being generated by a monitor. And, and it fascinated me that something that you could basically, you know, write with your fingers could give you sounds and colors. And I was just absolutely fascinated by this thing. I actually went out and even bought myself a uh, computer. I spent most of my time playing with that instead of doing my civil engineering, and that's why I didn't pass the second year. So I went back to Wales to work for my father, and what I said was, Dad, I think these computers are kind of the way of the future. At least as far as the lab is concerned, let's bring them in to the office side, and I can bring in some computers, and the office girls, instead of using these typewriters, these electric typewriters, can use a thing called a word processor. And, you know, obviously I had to explain the concept to my dad and explain it to the girls in the office. They were kind of very reluctant to embrace it initially. But once they got the hang of it, they realized, oh, this thing could be useful in the sense that we could type a letter and make corrections if we see it. And once the letter is to our satisfaction, boom, we can print it out one time. One of the other things that my dad kind of mentioned is the fact that all of our customer information was on these Rolodex cards. And I suggested, well, there's a thing that you can have within a computer called a database where you could basically access a lot of information in one spot instead of having to go through so many different cards. So my dad said, OK, fine, you need to go out to San Diego. And it was the end of December. And I was saying, OK, well, when should I go? February, you know, March, whatever. And he said, no, uh, you're going to go on Saturday. And I was like, Dad, it's Boxing Day. And he's like, well, you're going. And I remember getting my suit on and everything like that. There was a time when people actually dressed up to travel. So on Boxing Day 1986, I went to the airport with the other company director, and we flew from Heathrow to Chicago, Chicago to San Diego. So as you can tell, I have a very distinctive accent. And living in Southern California... It was very noticeable. So I realized that that accent could be an absolute asset, but in my case, it could also be a liability. So I decided that before I went to the first bank, I needed to print a note and have the note do the talking instead of me. This is what the note said specifically. Stay calm. We are not joking. Follow these instructions and everything is okay. Put $10,000 in the bag. Use hundreds, fifties, and twenties. The next four lines were each underlined. No fake money, no die packs, no alarms, no tricks. Stay calm, do it now. <laughs> 